It is titled, Investment Advice from Jesus. And as you might expect, knowing Jesus is the exact opposite of what every investment agent in the world is saying. Divest. Divest. Or, if you want to think about it in terms of uh, those of you who think economically, you want to diversify your portfolio. You want to move out of Canada and invest your funds, not in Asia Pacific, but in something so far beyond the Asia Pacific that it's actually in another world. Jesus offers investment advice. Some of you have uh, heard, pretty much everybody I suppose has heard of Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett is probably one of the richest men in the world, and he's well known for his investment advice. But one of the advice, pieces of advice that Warren Buffett often gives that is less well known concerns the biggest threat to his fund uh, holders and to anybody else. And it is the threat of biological, nuclear, uh, chemical warfare. And Buffett says that all throughout history, people have had these little weapons. They've had stones that one day they inevitably start throwing at each other. And when they got more sophisticated and had guns and inevitably they started shooting each other. And then they get machine guns and inevitably they started shooting each other with those. And now that we have nuclear weapons, Buffett says, and we can all hope and pray that he's wrong, but he might well be right, I suspect he is, that one day we will inevitably use those weapons against one another. Buffett says that he'd be willing to put all of his money into some kind of a fund if that fund could stand so much as a 5% chance of reducing that risk, even a 1% chance of reducing that risk, he would put all of his money into that fund because that threat, that looming threat in the future is so serious. Well, I think it's kind of a similarity when you think about it between Warren Buffett and Jesus. Both of them see something coming in the future that they think is worth putting all of your money into in order to change the outcome of. And in Jesus's case, as we will know from this story, as we look at it in a little more detail this afternoon, is that Jesus says that if you want to enter into eternal life, he says to the man, anyway, whether it's to us or not, we'll find out in a minute, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me, and you will have eternal dividends. You will, re you will receive a hundredfold or more in the heaven, in the eternal life than you have now, even if you're super rich, like our friend was. So our topic is investment advice from Jesus, and it involves divesting totally, or if you think of it another way, transferring your money into the other world. Let's look at our story this morning, and it's translated on the uh, front page. And it's a little bit different because one of the things I like to do when I work through the text is to try to highlight things that are in it that, um, that, that may not be all that evident in one translation or another. And we're going to look at it um, using a, a tool called a literary reading. And um, it's pretty simple. I'm just going to draw attention to some things, and we're going to take a super close look at this passage, uh, focusing largely on the first paragraph. 
Do you all have the, um, the, the handout, the, the staple page, page one? Great. A young man with three questions, which end in spiritual failure. We know the story, uh, but um, so I'm not going to I'm not going to read it again. But we'll go through it in effect verse by verse. And look, one approached him, and said, "Teacher, what good thing shall I do?" that I may have eternal life. Well, we know from the story of Luke that this is actually a rich man. And most of us know this story as the story of the rich young ruler. But Matthew doesn't tell us that the man is rich. And in fact, if you think of the man at this point in the story as rich, it's a spoiler. We're not supposed to know that yet. Matthew wants us to understand that this is Joe somebody. Joe, somebody approached him. He's called one. And he says, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now, when he says teacher, he's using a term that only Jesus' enemies or those who are dubious characters use. So Matthew is wanting us to think of this fellow as a little bit suspect from the beginning. And given what he says, it is. He says, what good thing shall I do so that I can have eternal life. Notice the way Jesus changes the cards in verse 17. He changes the language and questions what he says to begin with. He said to him, that is Jesus, why of me do you ask what is good? Only one is good. Matthew began by describing this man as one and talks about and Jesus rotates the things, or the good, from what to who. Why of me do you ask what is good? You know, you think there's good stuff out there, but I want to change your focus a little bit and suggest that it's not what that's good, but it's who that's good. And if you're asking me, I'm going to tell you that only one, capital O, is good. And that is God. And here Jesus is alluding to what Jews call the Shema. It's their short statement of faith in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it's followed by the Ten Commandments. So Jesus, having talked about one who is good, then is ready to tell him about the commandments. And the point is, is that if you're looking for what's good in life, mister, you should think not in terms of what, but in terms of who, and the who is God. And whatever God does, and whoever God is, it's all about good. And so if you want to know the one who is good, and you want to know what is good, keep his commandments, the Ten Commandments. And then the man says, I don't know, perhaps coyly, perhaps with a bit of confidence, but he says, which ones? So Jesus said, as follow. And then I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. I'm going to ask you which commandments are missing. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. There are a couple there that are missing. Somebody might sneak to Exodus chapter 20 for a look. Him, you're looking as though you might know one. You're mouthing out something. Go ahead. 
the first the first commandments right and those the the first commandments have to do with God right normally Jesus says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and your neighbor as yourself but here Jesus picks six commandments that pertain to individual relationships and then caps it off by saying you must love your neighbor as yourself what about the last commandment is it here I covet right Robin thou you shall not covet I always take comfort in knowing that I have never coveted my neighbor's donkey. Um, a lot of the other things I, I dare say I probably have, but not the donkey. Well, they're missing in a way, but then again, they're not. Because the beginning one is one that Jesus has already directed the man's attention to by talking about the one who is good. But we can't mistake the fact that Jesus' focus is on interpersonal relationships here. And he's about to tell the man to go and sell all that he has and give it to the poor. So when the man says, in verse um, 20, the young man says to him, all these things I have kept. Jesus is about to give him a little test of that. Well, let's find out. My friends, relationships with people are not trivial. They are as important commandments as the commandment to love God. Because after all, it was Jesus who added that second commandment. He chose a statement from Leviticus that no other Jew had picked up on in, in the day and used it as kind of the second part of the commandments. You must love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you don't commit adultery with your neighbor, you don't steal your neighbor, you don't steal something from your neighbor, you don't bear false witness against your neighbor, and so on. So then the young man says to him, still focused on things, all these things I have kept. Now let's notice in verse 20, the second thing that we now learn about the man. So far, according to Matthew, we've learned that he is one, simply a somebody. We don't yet know that he's rich. That would be a spoiler. I mean, we know, but we just got to hold that off. Now he's described as the young man. Commentators suggest that there may be two reasons why the young man is called the young man, in addition to the fact that the young man is a young man. One has to do with the fact that, as I've said in the third quote here, many people think that Jesus's target audience is the kind of audience that we predominantly have in our midst today. The young, uh, those of you who are at least past the student age and maybe getting decent jobs for once, the young upwardly mobile, people who are uh, at the stage of life where you're amassing wealth. And so Jesus characterizes him as a young man in the hopes perhaps that young people might relate. But there's another reason why he calls him a young man, and that is to make connection with the passage that preceded the week before. The passage that preceded the week before had to do with children. Children were being forbidden from coming to God. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. So here's somebody who is young. They're more than the age of a child. And the question is, will this person who is still in the category of young enter into the kingdom and he does not notice at the end of verse 20 that the man after having said i have kept all these commandments notices something that paul pointed out a long ago a long time ago what do i still lack you see keeping the commandments brings knowledge of sin and if you kept all the commandments like luther did 
very diligently for most of his life and all of his life, you still think there's something else I have to do to be right with God. So when he said, what do I still lack? We're told in one of the other gospels that Jesus then looked at him and loved him. As if to say, you know what? You recognize that you need something. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus said to him, verse 21, if you wish to be perfect, leave, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have, possession is still important, but it's been transferred to the next world. You will have treasure in the heavens and come on, follow me. That command, follow me, I think reiterates what was missing at the beginning. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Friends, if you want to love God, become a follower of Jesus because Jesus is God. If you want to have a relationship with God, study the teachings of Jesus and follow him because he is God. And then we find that upon hearing the word, the young man went away sorrowful, for he was having many things. Some translator says he had a lot of wealth. And as soon as I read the fact that he has a lot of wealth, I think, well, not me. But it says he was having a lot of stuff. I don't know about you, but sometimes what's in my closet, what's in my garage, what's in the attic is a bit of embarrassment because there's a lot of stuff up there. We in our culture accumulate stuff. Now that stuff can be hard to manage whether you like it or not. But if you have a lot of stuff and you're rich, it's this is what this is what kept man from following Jesus. And so in the in the man's case, Jesus said to him, kind of like what he said to the woman of Samaria, and I thank Robin Guinness for this insight from our staff meeting. He was talking with the other person and the conversation was going well, but then Jesus put his finger on the problem. In the case of the woman of Samaria, it was her marital relations. Uh, go and get your husband. I have had five husbands. Or Jesus said, you have had, you've had many husbands. Upon uh, hearing that the man said, what do I still lack? Jesus said, well, why don't you get rid of the things that you have? And in verse 22, upon hearing the word, the young man went away sorrowful, for he was having many things. The investment advice is divest. Divest. Well, then Jesus turns this into a lesson. Jesus is upset because the man has walked away and he's just invited him to follow him. This is the only case in the Gospels, so I'm told in the commentaries, I didn't check it out myself, but I'll have to take their word for it, or maybe I shouldn't, but I am for now, where someone has been invited to follow Jesus and they didn't. Upon hearing the word, the young man went away sorrowful, for he was having many things. Well, this upsets Jesus. And so he says to his uh, disciples, uh, he gives them a lesson that leads to their thinking about their possessions. And Jesus says something surprisingly, I tell you unequivocally, a wealthy person hardly, literally hardly enters into the kingdom of heaven. He talks about it being difficult, but then he ups the ante and in verse 24, he makes it it's clearly impossible. We saw this with the children's talk. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You may have read that there was a gate in Israel that might have been called the eye 
of the needle or something, and that uh, this really wasn't talking about the eye of a needle, but there, there's no such thing in, in uh, Jerusalem as far as we know, and Jesus is almost certainly talking about the same pinhole that we saw in the children's talk. And this is established by the disciples. When the disciples heard this, they were exceedingly astonished, saying, who therefore is able to be saved? And then in verse 26, there's a little word there for Jesus. Looking intently, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things were possible. Some of you, unlike Jenny, who didn't know my little trick about the poking, when I was telling that, she was, she was, she was keeping me from, from, uh, from uh, sort of blowing my cover where you, she was going like this. And I thought, okay, Jenny, keep quiet. We're going to talk about who gets to poke their hole, poke their head through this hole. I mean, what seems impossible to humans, in this case, it's simply a matter of uh, what you mean by poking your head, uh, poking um, your head through a hole, right? Uh, but in Jesus's case, all things are possible. Well, this raises one of the questions because in verse uh, 17, Jesus says, well, if you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. And the Paul scholar in us might sort of say, well, that's, that's not right. But this is Matthew. And Jesus says, keeping the commandments is important. And I think to make short of it, because time is passing, simply want to say that we don't want to, for a moment, downplay the importance of keeping the commandments. They're God's word. Jesus affirms them. They're all there for us to follow. But Jesus implicitly in this story, when he begins with, why of me do you ask what is good? Only one is good. He's alluding to God, through whom salvation comes. And salvation can come even to a rich person if God is behind it, even though otherwise it's impossible. So one of the things that, uh, that Bruner points out, and it's, 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 uh, it's in, in my notes, but I'll simply recall it off the top of my head. It won't be as smooth. But Bruner, when he's talking about the Sermon on the Mount, he says the Sermon on the Mount sounds like it's all keep the law. But you have to remember, it begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. And then in the middle of it is the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then it ends with come unto me all you are burdened and I will give you rest. So it's not a matter of law or gospel, it's a matter of law and gospel. And the law that Jesus teaches us to command is infused with the gospel. We can't do it without God. We can't do it without Jesus. And so to follow the commandments is to follow Jesus. And following the commandments perfectly is impossible. But with God, Jesus, whom we follow, because of his righteousness imputed to us, and because of his mercy and grace, it's all possible. My friends, where are you putting your life? Where are you looking for happiness? Are you looking for it in wealth? You're not going to find it. This man turned away and thought he'd give another kick at the can of wealth. But he lost out on the biggest opportunity and the best opportunity he ever could have had. Riches in heaven. So the problem of law and gospel is that both need to be brought together, and they're brought together gloriously in, uh, in Matthew. And even in Paul, 
Because Paul says in Romans chapter 22, 6 to 11, he will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Nothing here talking about faith. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. The two come together. But don't try it on commandments alone. Put the second part first. Faith in Jesus. A childlike faith in Jesus of the upside-down kind, of the kingdom-renouncing kind, is the way to fulfill the commandments. And we are made perfect by the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Second question would be, what's the problem in having both wealth and Jesus? What's the problem in having both wealth and Jesus? You might remember from the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about this a long while ago. Jesus said, you cannot serve two, uh, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Think about it. You think, well, wait a minute. I've got a job at Starbucks on uh, the weekends, and I, you know, I, 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 I work for an accountant three days a week. I, I serve two masters. You can serve two masters, but you can't serve these two masters. Because there's something in each one of them that doesn't compromise. Uh, God is kind of an all-or-nothing God. And money is kind of an all-or-nothing thing. And Jesus points out here, more than as much as anything else, in verses 24 and uh, 25, that there's something about money that is super sticky. And there's something so dangerous about it that it's virtually impossible to be a follower of Jesus and to be one who collects a lot of wealth. When I was giving the children's talk, I, I dropped a little um, prop behind the chair, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to pass it around. You'll see what I mean. This is one of those super sticky mouse traps. The kind which, if you ever know, you, you just touch that little pad and you're not going to get your finger off. So I'm going to ask you to pass it around, and I suggest that you pass it around very carefully because I didn't bring any rubbing alcohol. So hold it only on the outside, and as you do, you'll see there's a $5 bill in it. <laughs> if you're interested in the $5 bill, you want to take a shot at it. Go ahead. But I expect you to pass it over because there's a problem with the $5 bill, and that's Jesus' point. There's a problem with money. It wants your soul. There's no getting around it. It's just in the nature of the beast. Remember, it's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Terry, you are a smart man. I know you, if anybody's going to find a way, he's poking his pencil down there. Terry! <laughs> all right. As it's passing around, let me ask the third question, and that is, how far should we go in divesting? Is this command to us? And there's a debate in the church about whether that's so or not. And people come down on the side of saying, yes, Jesus said it to the rich man. He said it to a young rich man. So, Glenn Taylor, you should be telling all of the young people in the congregation that they ought to sell everything and give it to me. I mean, the poor. 
But there are other people who are saying, no, Jesus only said that to the rich man because that was the rich man's issue. Friends, the important thing is to take this seriously. I don't think it means that every one of us is asked to give away everything that we have. But it does urge us, demand us, require us, if we are followers of Jesus, we need to manage our money differently than the people who are not followers of Jesus. You can do that by thinking of strategic ways to allocate your funds to invest in that otherworldly kingdom through charitable givings. But the most essential thing to do, I think, is to ask yourself, how much does money matter to me? If I were asked by Jesus this afternoon, the question, the command that Jesus gave to the man, would I do it? The more money you have, the harder it is. The more you love your 1960 Corvette, I didn't say 1962 Thunderbird, but 1960 Corvette, the harder it's going to be. How willing are you to let go of your possessions? If you think twice about it, there's a problem. So we need to remanage. We need to reallocate. That's the only responsible thing to do as a follower of Jesus, is to do this in a radical kind of a way. Let me make a suggestion. As I was thinking this week, by way of application, um, and we're coming to the end, and I'm keeping my watch on the clock. I'm at 26 minutes. I'm going to finish at 30. My great-grand, my great-uncle is known in the family for not believing in insurance. Great-uncle Fred. He didn't believe that a Christian should have insurance. Why? Not mine in the first place. God takes it away. God takes it away. Not a Christian thing to do to have insurance. Well, that's kind of lived with me all of my life. And we have insurance. Um, my wife is uh, more anxious about things than I am. Doesn't mean that she's not as strong a Christian. It's just kind of an issue with her. She was brought up in a poor home. So we have insurance. Why not have only partial insurance? Instead of paying for the 100% of what your assets are, why don't you insure yourself for what you need to live on if it goes? Can you live in a house that's half the size of the one that you own? Well, why don't you insure it for 50%? Give the rest to the poor. I think that would be a pretty Christian thing to do. What might be some of the other ways that we can rethink our money, rethink what we do with our money? Can't take it with us. This man's issue was he thought he was being charitable to everyone else. And Jesus' point was, and this is, I think, the point to us, well, so long as there are people in the world who are poor and you have more than you need, are you really loving your neighbor? Are we really loving our neighbors if we have much and they have too little? We need to think about that really seriously. And above all, we need to think about whether the sticky factor in money has got a hold of it. Don't just go by default. You're going to have to have a strategy not to let it get a hold of you. Because if you stick your finger in that mouse box, it's going to stick. So the isopropyl or the rubbing alcohol is the grace of God, the mercy of God, prayer, a heart that's dedicated to Jesus, that is single-heartedly given over to him and not to money. And then you use your money for God's wealth. You, could, you, you use your money for God's purposes. My friends, there's a reward in heaven 
in 27 to 29, Jesus talks about divesting. And good old Peter, you know, he sticks his, he sticks his foot in it again. I'm, I'm pretty hard on Peter, and I may be too hard on Peter, but uh, he means well, and Jesus always brings out the best in him. On behalf of the disciples, Peter says, well, look, it is we who have left everything and followed you. What then will we get? He's still in the have department. What do we have? And then Jesus issues a promise that's specific to the disciples in verse 28, and then specific to us in verse 29. Here's the promise to the disciples, and you can look in the notes for when that might happen. Jesus said, I say to you truly that in the regeneration, in the remaking of the world, the Son of Man sits on his throne of glory. It is you who have followed me who will also sit on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Um, somebody in a Bible study not long ago said, well, what about Judas? It says, you who have followed me will sit on the 12 thrones judging the tribes of, of, uh, of Israel. Uh, Judas was replaced in early in the chapters of, uh, of Acts. If you want to see what, when and how that might be fulfilled, I welcome you to look at it in the notes. But here's the one that comes for every one of us. And everyone who has left, and I'm going to ask you for another question here. How many entities does Jesus mention in verse 29 as I read it? And everyone who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields, for my name's sake, shall receive as many times as much and will inherit eternal life. How many things are mentioned there? Him? No? Oh, I was talking about her, him, him, not him, him. Usually him, him has an answer, but her, him was looking like she might have an answer. Seven. There are seven things that are mentioned. And seven is the symbol of perfection. And folks, this is not an inclusive language translation. Sisters is not added. Mother is not added. It's in there in the words of Jesus. Brothers or sister or father or mother or children or fields. For my namesake, in other words, if you leave it to follow me out of love for God, you shall receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. That's a promise. Dare we rest on our laurels? A little twist at us. And he says, but many first will be last and last first. And of course, he's going to go on to talk about the parable of the generous uh, vineyard employer. And so we can never rest complacently because the road isn't done. And none of us can ever presume that God is not so generous that he might bless superabundantly somebody who has worked less hard than we have. So hang on until the end. Investment advice from Jesus. Divest. Or, put it another way, invest in the otherworldly fund. My friends, I'm at... 30 minutes, I think, but as I close, 32 minutes, yipes, I simply want to remind you of something that I decided to put in uh, pages four and five of your notes, and that is a review of the Sermon on the Mount. Many of the themes that have come up in chapter 19, chapter 18, were already in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's a wonderful summary of what's in the Sermon on the Mount there. We're talking still about kingdom righteousness, and it's an upside-down kingdom, and there are four themes. I'll just say them and then sit down. All shall be made well. In fact, the standard is perfection. Go deep with God's commands. 
Get real before God rather than appearing real before others. Be vulnerable. Focus on the eternal and believe in God's care and provision. It is that care and provision which will bring you to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.